Today's episode is uh, extraordinary in every aspect of the word. We talked to a lady called Nicole who has gone through severe, severe um, anorexia, eating disorders, uh, hospitalized and institutionalized for years um, and has kind of not seen any progress in her recovery until about um, a couple years ago uh, when she found her uh, life coach. And this particular coach, uh, you know, she'd seen dozens and dozens and dozens of therapists over her time and different medications and the whole works. And although she had progressed a little bit, really there was a a massive plateau and, and no real kind of uncovering of how she was to make any structural change. But recently when um, she found someone who truly understood her, like we refer to so many times on this podcast, feeling seen, feeling understood, the magic started to happen. And and um, I'm really excited for you guys to listen to the journey that she's been on. And it, uh, it makes me proud to do this work when... I hear from people with the level of resilience that Nicole has. Triggers on this episode are around eating disorders, particularly anyone who's currently going through an experience of um, dealing with food intake. Uh, Be careful not to overindulge in stories around around this or use it as an escape but use it as something to know that you're not alone and to help you find your footing in stepping away from the reliance on an aspect of your life like this and moving more toward the version of yourself which you know you can become as always go slow go strong one moment at a time we're all on the journey So welcome, Nicole, to the podcast uh, where we're focusing on, I guess, the untold stories of everyday people who have been through extraordinary things relating to mental health. Um, And I'm really, really humbled that that you've come and joined us today. Thanks. Um, I know you've had uh, an amazing uh, journey, which I'm really excited to hear about, but I just want to for our uh, for our listeners, let them know that um, your your coach uh, slash counselor actually reached out to me and said, "Look, I've been following the the movement and hard on my sleeve for a very long time, and I've been working with this lady Nicole, and she really has an amazing story to tell. Would you be interested in talking to her?" And I said, "Yes, absolutely." And here we are, Sydney to Scotland. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and having a chat. So um, like many mental health stories, it, uh, it usually starts when we were 
pretty young. So I, I think that that was true for you, right? In your teenage years, uh, things started to emerge. Yeah. Um, like, obviously, uh, I've, I've been um, recovered for eight years now. Um, but, like, I think looking back, obviously working a lot with Susan, my, my life coach, um, we've really delved into really deep things. Um, I mean, throughout the whole of my, my mental health, um, I've had lots and lots of therapy, um, lots of like CBT, DBT, um, lots of different things, but things that never really, never really came true for me. It never really worked as such. So I've always kind of been stuck in that rut where I've been recovered physically, but there's always been that mental attachment that's never sort of, never came to light, never sort of came better. Um, until I reached out to, to Susan, my life coach, and within the last eight months that I've been working with her, there's been phenomenal changes, and like, I mean, life changes. Um, and like, obviously, eight years of therapy, it didn't touch anything, and eight months of life coaching has completely changed my life. Um, like, looking back, I think now, I can see it all started when I was like 13, 14, so sort of just going into high school, um, just sort of hitting like the teen years, um, I had a really bad time at school. I was um, bullied, taunted, um, name called um, because of my size. Um, I was always kind of like a bigger, like the bigger girl, do you know what I mean? But obviously going through like puberty and like the teen years and things, there was a lot of change happening in my body, mm-hmm. um, which it was just, you know, nothing really came off it at the time because you don't, you, I kind of, I had a good group of friends. I fitted in well and stuff like that. So everything was kind of normal. Um, and it wasn't until like, you know, nothing, nothing triggered anything. There was nothing that sort of stuck out as such until, uh, I was 17 and I decided to join the RAF. Um, and I moved away to Halton, which is down in London. So it's like hundreds of miles away. And that's when the real problem began. Um, because I'm such a high strive person, like a high achiever. Um, I think I'm not going to be the best. I'm not going to fit in. Uh, I really started to exercise um, and because I've got an addictive personality, the exercise really took hold. Sorry to interrupt you. I want, I want to let you keep rolling, but just quickly, mm-hmm. the RAF that you joined is armed services, right? Yeah. 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 The Royal so, Air Force. Yeah. Royal Air yeah. Force. Yeah. You lost, you lost a lot of weight compared to um, yeah. what, what, what you were traditionally and that started yeah. to become an unhealthy level of, of um, weight loss. Is that correct? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, this was prior to going to the RAF. So um, I was obviously underweight before I left, um, but I still got to go, you know, I went to the RAF because the doctor didn't want to shatter my dreams. That was his exact words. He, he knew that I shouldn't go, but he didn't want to shatter my dreams. So he, he, t- he let me go. Um, and obviously I was verging on an eating disorder then, but to me it was still unknown. You know, I was in, in the depths like a mental health and you think nothing's wrong. So I was all right, like to me. So I went down there and then um, obviously it just got worse. And with my addictive personality, it was just like an addiction. You know, I stopped eating like carbs. I stopped eating fats. I was just living on like protein um, and obviously in the Royal Air Force, you're doing a lot of exercise day in, day out, burning lots of calories. So the weight was just dropping off me. And um, it wasn't until one day I was out for a run and my whole body just gave in. I collapsed. And I can remember it to this day. It was just like an absolute blackout. Um, and I woke up in the hospital and down in the Royal Air Force in the medical uh, centre. 
Um, where I spent two weeks down there, but again, they weren't the the lack of knowledge that they had was so so like little. They didn't understand it. They didn't know. They thought it was just like a case of just eating and I'll be better. So the care that I got down there was really really I wouldn't say poor, but it just wasn't wasn't the care that I needed because I was so unwell. Um, they ended up bringing me back up to Scotland to get the care that I needed, but yet again, like the mental health like care that I needed was not not sufficient because it's I know an eating disorder is very very common but the knowledge and understanding is very very rare there's not like there's not enough out there to be able to educate people about it and and that's one of the things though it's okay like a doctor being educated but for me and what I've learned along the lines is that actually I'm probably a better educator than any of the doctors you know you have to have been through it yourself to be able to understand it mm-hmm. um and so, yeah, so when I came back home, I was just getting worse. I was living with my mum and dad at the time, and I was just getting worse and worse and worse um, until I ended up having to go into um, a psychiatric hospital. Um, but even in the psychiatric hospital, I only lasted two weeks because, again, they didn't, they were, the psychiatric hospital was more for schizophrenia, bipolar, you know, things like that. It wasn't specifically for eating disorders. So I was doing the same as what I was doing down in the RAF as I was in the hospital. Um, thankfully, the hospital that I was at, the psychiatric hospital, was only two minutes down the road from the actual general hospital. Um, and again, when I was in the psychiatric hospital, I took another blackout because my um, hemoglobin dropped and my, my glycogen. Um, so I was blue, blue lighted down to the hospital where I spent a further three months in there. And again, I keep on saying it, but that was just to get my physical health back. It wasn't anything to do with mental health. It was just to get me, you know, like my fluids right, my blood right, back on the machines to get my body back physically healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so after three months in that hospital, I was then, when I was sort of physically healthy, because I lost the ability to walk. I was in a wheelchair. My muscles were just wasting away. I couldn't do anything for myself. I was on drips. I just, I couldn't do anything. Um and then obviously when I was three months, when obviously like my bloods and stuff had stabled, I had like blood transfusions, platelet transfusions, you know, all, all everything. Um, I was then taken to a hospital, which was another 120 miles away from my home, um, to a mental health, um, which was specifically for eating disorders, um, where I spent a further year. And I was a year um, as an inpatient in this hospital where I didn't leave at all. I was a whole year up there. Wow. Um, so that's, when I, that's almost yeah. four hospitals by this point. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and when I went up to that hospital for a year, unbeknown to me, I didn't know I'd be there for a year because at the same time, obviously, I still thought everything was all right. Although I was nearly dead, I still thought I was okay. And that's the thing. It's such a it's such a horrendous illness because although you're going through all this, there's the physical symptoms, there's the mental symptoms. You actually think that you're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. And that's a scary thing. You know, you can't see what other people see. It distorts your body image. Um, people see you as really, really thin and well, and you think that you're the biggest person out there. You're the fattest person, you know, which is so, so scary. The body image side of things is just really scary. So can I ask and, you a question on that? Just, just yeah. um, with, with people who, so, so I haven't been through an eating disorder, but I've had OCD, which um, is kind of similar. You've got distorted... Yeah thoughts and 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 that you know that they're irrational and unrealistic but you don't know it at the same time like you consciously know that it's not right but you can't feel 
that. Like it's almost like there's a disconnect between what your body's evidently being like, no, this is, this is true. And your brain's like, oh, well, why do we have different yeah. facts? Um, and so, and that's the thing, like yeah. that's uh, like along with eating disorders, I actually have OCD as well because that's one of the traits that come along with. And mm. like you're saying, um, you do things, okay? So, for an example, from an OCD, everything has to be in straight line, like, and I mean a straight line. And you know, and you can hear yourself saying that is bloody stupid, but mm. deep down, it's not stupid to you. Do you know, it's like you know the rights and wrongs, but you can't do, you can't reverse them. You know, it's so hard. It it definitely is, and, and so from an from your standpoint with uh, with the eating disorder stuff, would you, um, when your bloods would come back negative and you're in a wheelchair because your your muscles were were degrading and decaying, um, what what was happening when people around you and even your own own body was like, hey, like the tests are showing me that I'm unwell. But what was your mind saying in, in response to that? Um, my mind was really, really strong. Like, basically, like, the indus- I have, like, I heard voices, you know, and the voice in my head was with me for a long, long time. And within that voice, basically, the voice just wanted me dead. Like, it just, like, it wanted me dead. So no matter if the doctor, I could have four doctors tell me exactly the same thing or the blood show me exactly the same thing, or my body physically saying, look, I'm not strong enough, there's something wrong here. But my mind was so oblivious to it all because it just didn't believe it, like didn't believe it at all. Although deep, deep down I knew, but that mm-hmm. mind was so overpowering that it was overpowering my actual like true thoughts. And so it would just say, it, that's wrong, they're lying, that's not true. You just yeah. couldn't accept the reality. Yeah. Yeah, basically, the voice is like a huge bully. You know, they would tell me that I wasn't out the woods yet, so I was nowhere near better. That I could like, like I was minutes from death. Basically, my whole family were called up to the hospital, um, and I can remember that day I woke up and the, all my family were sitting around me because I was obviously minutes from death. I had my liver function. My my liver consultant had never seen a liver like it. It was so so bad. He actually thought I'd been smoking for like a lifetime. It was so bad. It was nearly dead. Um, but nothing shocked me. You know, they they told me lots of times. They didn't actually say in as many words as you're going to die. But obviously, you're not out of the woods. It's quite a strong thing. Yeah. But to me, that was like it didn't phase me. It didn't bother me at all. You know, I thought, oh yeah, whatever kind of thing. Um, because this voice was so strong and all it wanted was just to kill me. So, well, first of all, I want to just create a bit of space for that because that's a huge, that's a huge thing for you to endure. And I really, I feel for you. I feel with you in this moment. And I'm so grateful to be talking to you and, and to still have you here because you deserve to be here. Mm-hmm. And you also deserve to feel peace from that internal chatter. And I, I, I'm glad that, that you are uh, getting, getting that. Um, so so you, were, you were kind of moments from what could be fatal level of physical health. You have your mind is telling you, no, that's not true. Don't want to listen to it. Shutting it out continuously. Mm-hmm almost attacking attacking yourself and there you are in hospital watching your family upset around you and for you wishing they could do something not understanding 
how you could feel so powerless and then there you were. Yeah. Yeah. So what happens when, when you're down there feeling like that? What goes through your mind? Like I say, not a very, not a very, like not a lot because I'm just, I just feel so oblivious because I just feel, I think as well, because I was so physically unwell, I was just so tired, so fatigued. So I had no fight in me, you know, and it was just, I don't mean easier, but like to go with the voice was so much less like painful because it was just like I had done with a fight in, do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and because the voice became part of me, part of my comfort zone, although it was really detrimental to me, it was kind of like the normal for me. It was um, Yeah, yeah. And it became, if you want to say it became my friend, do you know, it, it was a real attachment to me. Mm. Um, although it was bullying, it was uh, really inferior for me at the same time. But because it had been with me for so long, it became like my, my friend. Um, and because socially as well, like I lost a lot of friends through what I went through because they couldn't understand and the lack of knowledge and, you know, I used to get frustrated and if I was getting frustrated and couldn't understand, then how were they going to understand? So a lot of my friends left me like through that. So with having like this voice, it was kind of like my only social connection, if you like. Um, so it became my friend. So because it became my friend, no matter what anybody told me, this voice would be telling me that they were telling lies. They were just like making it all up. So I would start believing that. Mm. Wow. And with with as as this voice grew stronger and and you and you believed it and as you say uh, you were running out of fight. What's interesting mm-hmm. is that paradoxically another part of you wasn't running out of fight. You, as you say, your mind was so strong, it was mm-hmm. it was relentless. It, it was like you know even when your body was giving up, your mind just wouldn't give you a break, and so. Even though it was your biggest enemy, as you say, you re- you respected the tenaciousness of it, I guess. Yeah. And that's the thing as well, because like, even like, obviously when I came out of hospital and I was sort of like an outpatient, like they used to always say to me that like, like I was like fight or flight, like, you know, the, the power, the drive, the will that I had to, to do something was there so, so strong, but I couldn't use it in the right way, you know? To get that, to, to flip it upside down to get better, it took me a long, long time to be able to do that because I couldn't flip it upside down. I used all the willpower to get so low, so ill, but I could never flip it up to get better. You know, although I have an addictive personality and I have that drive and I have that, like, you know, you give me a challenge and I'll do that challenge because I've got that in me, but I could not get it to get me better, right. which was so Right, um, so you had this friend that was this incredibly um, resilient voice that 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 started to become an enemy and and start to hurt you. But if only, and what what is now seems apparent is, if only you could use that part of you to help you go in the right direction. Imagine what could become possible, i.e., yeah. what you've done. Yeah. Yeah, and and so talk me through. So so you're at kind of at that position where you're at your most frail. You're in hospital. What what happens next? What do the next few months look like? 
Um, yeah, so I was in the hospital, um, like the, the, obviously the mental health hospital. So that was the one that was kind of like geared up for like someone like me and it was solely just eating disorder. Mm-hmm. So like every single day, um, I mean, I was still in a wheelchair at this moment. I was still getting tube fed as well. That was another thing I had a tube in because obviously I'd been so malnourished that I couldn't, not that I would because I was really still struggling to eat, but I couldn't just sit down and eat because it was like you could like flood your stomach and stuff because my stomach had shrank so much. Mm. Um, so I was having to get tube fed so it was very very gradually very very slowly so it's like a refeeding syndrome um, so in this hospital every day 9 to 5 it was like going to school you would get up I was on 24-7 observations as well so that was another thing it was very degrading very like demeaning because I had to get like carers to come in and take me to the shower to wash me to dress me to do everything for me because I couldn't do it Um and this went on for the first, I would say, seven months because I was still mentally really, really ill. Um, but I still had to attend. So it was like nine to five. So you had to attend like classes, which was like the CBT, the DBT, um, like therapy groups, um, like different things like that. You know, like like not so much sports exercises, but obviously like movement just to get the movement back in your body. Um, so you had like physios and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also a very set day because obviously you had your meals so it was eaten six times a day so you'd go down as a group it was a there was like 15 of us in this hospital so it was basically you, you got like one-to-one care um, and like the 15 of us would go down to the dining room eat our breakfast together and then go and have a talk afterwards and then it would be like you'd have a break for like 10 o'clock, you'd go and get something to eat again. And it'd be like lunchtime, you know, it would be like a set structural day, nine till five, um, every single day, even Saturdays and Sundays. Um, and for the first two months of that, I didn't get to see anybody. My family weren't allowed in at all to see me because I had to really settle in, really knuckle down and get like, you know, get basically back on track. Um, but for me, the first seven months of it, like looking back now, I was just the same. And I always describe it as being like a zombie. It was like I went to these classes, but I couldn't tell you what was going on. I couldn't tell you what they were saying because it was just like I was there in person, but I wasn't. You know, my mind was just totally gone. I could hear voices and people speaking, but taking things in and remembering things, I couldn't tell you what they were telling me. Mm. So like for first seven months of my admission and I, I was still in a wheelchair as well still physically really un, like really frail the first seven months of my admission was just the same there was no change whatsoever I mean yes I gradually gained weight and stuff but because my mental um, health was really really deteriorated my brain was really really like frail there was no change in that side of things so that was really hard as well because physically I was getting better. I started to walk again. I could, I started to be able to feed myself again and stuff like that. But mentally I was way behind, you know, which was a real struggle. Mm. So, so there's kind of been this unfortunate situation where you've been passed to the help, which is amazing. And the help is, is trying its best. Um, but, uh, it's kind of things have not clicked fully. And I think this is a, a big lesson that we want to take out. One of the lessons from this story is that just because the help on the first go all the way up to the fourth go doesn't work, yeah. it doesn't mean that you're unhelpable. And so uh-huh. um, I just want to 
highlight that. So, so seven months in, um, what, what started to change? What started to bring you out of that uh, kind of plateau? I think, like, I know looking back on it now, I really, really don't know what helped because um, I still maintain that it wasn't the therapy that I got. I maintain that it was the fact that I had started to get into a routine of eating. I'd ate enough. My body had caught up, so the nutrition had caught up, so my mind had started to catch up as well. Mm-hmm. And like, so for the last three months, it was kind of like, oh, I know this is quite ironic because of like an eating disorder, but I kind of ate myself out of the hospital. You know, I complied with everything. I ate what they said. I done this. I done that. I started to get passes home. Start to get like things like normal people do. And I think I just like for the last three months, I thought, oh, I've had enough in here. I'm out of here, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but even when I did get out and got like discharged. I was still really mentally, like, still quite ill because as well the, the eating disorder really, like, it tricks you kind of thing. Do you know, it's it's a really deceiving illness. It's a really nasty illness. It's a real competitive illness. Um, so even though I, when I got discharged, I was still an outpatient, um, which I worked with the outpatient team for a further five years. So that was like, at first it was like every week the, the guy would come and see me at the house for an hour. Um, and then obviously when I gradually got better, it used to go to like monthly and then it went to three monthly and then, you know, you just get checkups and stuff. Um, but for a further five years, I worked with the outpatient team. Okay. Um, so and, and this is at your parents' place. You moved back in with your parents after hospital, Yeah. Right? Yeah, I was still living with my mum and dad then, yeah. Yeah. And, and how um, old are you at this age when you've just come out of hospital? Um, I was 19. Yeah. 19. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, um, so uh, what, what was home like, like as, as you were kind of slowly starting to recover, you've got kind of supervision still for in an outpatient setting, slowly starting mm-hmm. to find your feet. What was your headspace like and what was the environment like at home? Well, the environment to me was okay. Um, and this is like obviously when we go further down the line this is what I want to kind of touch on but yeah the environment for me was okay what I thought Um, obviously my mum was really cautious around me because she'd nearly seen me die you know so she was really on top of me all the time and it was really really hard but at the same time I'd been used to that kind of 24-7 observation for like the, the whole year plus two months or whatever that to me I thought it was normal mm. Um. So it sounds but, like your your mum was almost traumatized by the experience, or at least um, experiencing a lot of her own guilt and shame. Is that a fair reflection? Yeah, that's very fair because, like, even now when you say that, obviously she feels guilty and stuff. She always said, and I've heard her so many times saying that it was her fault. She should never let me go to the RAF, but it it wasn't her fault. It happened. It wasn't. It was nobody's fault. You know. I don't blame anybody. I don't even blame myself because I, I believe that what happens happens. What's meant to be is meant to be. And if it didn't happen to this day, I wouldn't be here telling my story. I wouldn't be able to help other people. So it's happened for a reason. And that's the way I look at it, you know. Definitely. And it's such a, it's such a healthy, healthy mindset to have. And, but, yeah. but I, I do want to say, it, from, from what I can hear, I don't think it was the 
the RAF that did it. It sounds like it's kind of bigger than that and probably was boiling under the surface from well before you started there. Would you agree? Yeah, that that's like, I'm smiling here because it's like, I used to always blame it on the RAF. I used to always say it was RAF's fault kind of thing. Like, I know I've just said that, that I don't blame it on anything, but I don't so much mean blame it on the RAF, but I mean, I feel that it was like the RAF that really set it off. Because, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until I, like, I really worked, and even working with my therapist, and I mean, I had top therapists, like, when I was in the hospital, like, people from London Hospital and things like that, that really worked with me. Um, and like I say, this was like every day I got therapy for like an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but until I started working with Susan, my life coach, um, and I told her the whole thing that I've told you, and I used to say, yeah, I think it was the RAF that set me off. And until we started, like, delving deeper, and actually really touching the core, which is a massive change for me. Like when I used to work with my therapist, it never used to go so deep. It used to be basically in for an hour and out for an hour. It was kind of like they were just rushing you in, rushing you out. Um, and until I started working with Susan, we really came across that it was nothing at all to do with the RAF. It was so much deeper. And it like came to light that it was things obviously like the bullying at school, that was a real big thing that really shattered my confidence. It really knocked my self-esteem. So that kind of thing, like to the core is so much deeper than saying that it was RAF. Yeah. And and so uh, obviously I I really want to get into what you think has been the most powerful and influential positive impact on your life and the work that you've been doing with your life coach. But just before we do, um, what do you think as you started to do more of this personalized work with the life coach and you were kind of, you, you were, you were out of hospital, but it sounds like you weren't thriving. You were kind of just uh, surviving and, and, and living, trying to do what you could do. Where has revealed itself to be, what are some of the core beliefs now that you can see that, that were causing you to take it out on things like eating? Obviously there was, there was the bullying. Um, were there any, was there any other events or things? And even if there wasn't, what were some of the core beliefs that you held? Um, do you mean like, obviously like realizing things were working with Susan? Yeah. So, so with, with her, um, did, did you uncover anything which was like, Oh, you know, from, from 13 years old, even before that, I, I kind of remember feeling like I wasn't enough and, or, or that I, uh, you know, and, and, and do you know why you were feeling those things? Yeah, I think obviously, um, well, obviously I, I had like within the five years, like obviously I worked with outpatients for five years and then obviously I was discharged from them and I had obviously my daughter um, mm. and I had a bit of like obviously postnatal depression and things because I didn't plan on having any kids. So that was a real, you know, I kind of took that as a failure because it was like I, I could never get back to the RAF. She'd really like ruined my life because I hadn't planned on having her and I had planned on doing X, Y, and Z. And now I had a kid, I couldn't do that kind of thing. So okay. I think that played a big part in it as well. But two of the main things that were really, really discovered and worked really hard on was, um, you know, I, I got all the therapy, all the doctors and everything, and they, they take me in, they give me this, they give me that, they give me medication. Uh, take this you'll get better sort of thing which I don't everybody to their own but I don't believe in medication I don't believe that's the cure it's the easiest way out for a doctor and um, I feel the therapy and stuff that I got 
which we really like came true and discovered with Susan was I was getting therapy, which was textbook therapy. They would sit down, they would give me sheets, work on these, hand them back next week. And they were treating me like everybody, you know, a wide mm. spectrum textbook patient. Yep. Whereas when I started working with Susan, it was just, and I've only been working with her like eight months. Um, so just like last year. Um, but she, like what she has done with me is just phenomenal. She's treated me as an individual, you know, and not a textbook style. Um, she's really went really, really deep, uncovering lots of like lots of things. Um, and one of the another main thing that really came out of it was um, the life I've had with my mum, living in my mum and dad's home, the environment. Um, and to me, again, it was normal for me because it was an everyday occurrence. I lived with that every day, but when we've been discovering and uncovering things, it's been a lot of um, mental abuse that I've been getting from my mum. <laughs> but for me, I thought that was normal because if you hear something like that every single day, you think that's normal, you know? Mm. And it wasn't until I started speaking to Susan that we discovered that it's actually been a lot of mental abuse that's been going on. Mm. So, so it's almost like, you were lacking a sense of control um, because yeah. because she she was well I I don't want to say that you you felt as though she was taking all of that from you that you definitely so rigid your your life was yeah. so rigid and suffocated um, uh-huh. right yeah and, and I think as yeah, well like when you say that about her like kind of taking all the control this is what me and Susan kind of discovered that this is why. I I got the seating disorder because for me it was the only thing I could control. Mm. You know, it was my it was my control because I had no other control whatsoever because my mum was living my life. She was controlling what I did, what you know, everything. But for me that was normal. But I think this is how along with like obviously bullying and name calling and things like that and feeling really low in myself, but I think that is one of the biggest things that because I had no control over my life, that the eating disorder was my control. Yeah. You know, yeah, and obviously we we want to recognise that for for other people right now um, that are feeling vulnerable and are feeling like they don't have the control. Um, that Nicole's story isn't one that's trying to encourage finding control through unhealthy means like food restriction. Um, it's really important that she's actually saying the opposite. That she's recognised. Uh, that there was a lack of control. She was feeling smothered and she she looked to things like food, um, but that wasn't the answer and, and actually drove her away. But what has been the answer, and it's interesting, your, your, your two things that you mentioned um, line up exactly to the heart on my sleeve philosophy and um, actually all the previous podcasts with Harvard psychologists and you name it, which is, we first want to feel understood more than anything. Yeah. And it sounds as though you finally felt like you as a human being, a unique individual with a beating heart separates everyone else in the world got to be seen for who you are mm-hmm. and that that was transformational. And yeah. that I, I couldn't agree with that anymore it is the, the power, the infinite power of feeling seen and understood. And then, yeah. um, this, the second thing is uh, approaching it from an authentic relational standpoint, i.e. 
connection, not just feeling understood in the head, but feeling connected at the heart, which is you can walk in and someone can understand you or you can go through that cognitive behavioral therapy process, like you said, and no discredit to psychologists. Um, As someone who has a master's degree in psychology, I do know that the approach um, that you do to train to be a professional psychotherapist is one where it's the medical model. There's frameworks, you know, you know, eight week courses and, and cause that's the way that the Western world thinks it's, it's easy to measure. And so therefore what's easy to measure is easy to build process and practice around. Now the shortfall in the model is that if we don't also teach people on how to relate to one another as human beings, i.e. Uh-huh. how you connect, how, how you build rapport, how you bond, how you empathize, all those things outside of the textbook approach, then uh-huh. none of it actually lands. And so and you know, you're sorry, an example that, of that. Yeah, that's the thing. Like the, the therapy and things that I had from the medical side of things, like for the, I would say, at least six, seven years, like I said to you at the very start, it never I thought it was working kind of thing, but it never really done any change mentally. And within the short space of time, within eight months, the change that I have made with Susan, the life coach, has been, I keep on saying it, but it's been phenomenal. And it's something that nobody really thinks of and they think, oh, a life coach, she'll never help or he'll never help. But I'm not joking yet, like the changes that I have done. And it is down to the fact that the connection, the rapport, the bonding, the, the time, the, the true deepness that they go to, you know, is just unbelievable. Mm. And they don't treat you as a, they, they don't treat you as like a textbook style or like a, a vast range of people. They treat you as an individual and that's what you need. And also like, like Susan has been there before, not so much with eating disorders, but a lot of things, like you can say you have an eating disorder, but there's a lot of attachment to it, like anxiety, depression, yeah. Um, mental abuse you know there's lots of different like arms and legs from it if you like yeah. so the eating disorder isn't actually the main main problem it's a lot of little things built up to to that you know mm-hmm. and and she's been through things as well and I think that helps someone having a true understanding yeah definitely and it sounds like as well that she's helped you um change your own narrative that you've been telling yourself and even little <laughs> things like I'm sure that because uh, from my own experience, you kind of want to put blame somewhere and it was yeah. really liberating to hear you say, I don't blame anyone. Um, and I think, yeah. I think that you would agree that you don't blame your mum either. Like you understand oh. where, where she's played a role um, because context is really important and understanding where different stories have emerged from and where you're carrying things that might not be even yours to hold. And, and you, you, you need to be, you need to know that, Oh shit, that's actually someone else's in order to give it back. But you've owned your story and you've taken full accountability for it. And I think your life coach has, has enabled you to do that, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so, so any specific examples that, that you want to kind of extend upon into what you think has also worked that you would encourage other people to, to kind of focus on? Um, I think mindset for me is a huge one because it was such an unhealthy mind that I had. Um, and again, with working with like Susan, my life coach, she's been able to help me change my, my mindset and a healthy mindset. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a huge thing, you know, if you have a negative mindset or an unhealthy mindset and then it's kind of like going nowhere um, until you start stepping back and realizing things from different perspectives, then you get a true understanding, your mindset starts to change and like it becomes a lot healthier. Like if you'd spoke to me eight months ago, I would never have believed that I could like even be on this with you and speak to you. You know, it was something I could never do. But like within the eight months that I've worked with Susan, my mindset has changed so much, like for healthiness, that it's almost like I can do anything kind of thing now. It's almost like nothing's impossible. And a huge learning thing that I've learned is that anything thrown in your way, if you like, if you do it well or if you don't do it well, it's always a learning like thing, you know, you and, and if you learn from something, it enables you to grow. Yeah. Do you know, um, and I think that I, I always like look at that as a really healthy way now because like I used to go, I used to do something and I used to think, oh, I've failed at that. That's really bad. And it used to really set me off. It used to put me in a downer and I used to could like not pick myself up for days. But now looking at things after talking with Susan, changing my mindset, it's like, you know, if I don't succeed in something, then that's there for a reason it's I've not succeeded because I need to go back I need to learn from what what went wrong and then from that I can then grow which then you grow which then pushes you forward you know and then it's like onto the next step so every day is a learning every day is a stepping stone and and what are some of the things that you've done to to get into that positive mindset what are some of the things that you've told yourself or practices that you do um, I do like um, a few podcasts and things um, like obviously uh, meditation um, I do quite a few of them um, I also talk to myself daily like positive talk um, I use a lot of that you know like a lot of positive talk like in my house on my mirrors I've got things written like um, for instance on my bathroom mirror I've got a quote saying I am enough every morning I look at that and I say that to myself whether it's out to myself or into myself it's just like positive talk all the time I love that. That's actually uh, our, our tagline. If you go to our Instagram bio right now, uh-huh. at heart on my sleeve, it'll say I am enough. So uh, <laughs> we, are, we are speaking the same language. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, so, yeah. so when a negative thought comes up, um, what, what would be your old mindset versus your new one? Like an, an old one would be like, you know, just buy into it straight away and maybe feed yeah. it. A new one would, would challenge it and say maybe that's not true or... I use the I use the term a lot that uh, thoughts are not facts. Mm. Um, and before, when I used to have a thought, like you say, it was like, like I'm really good with imagery. Like I really like imagery is a real strong point for me. So when I used to get a thought, I could see myself like with a, a fishing net, and it was like catching that thought, and I would hold on to it for so long until I started believing that it was true because I would tell myself that it was, it was, it was, and then it, and then it became true. It became reality for me. But now it's like when you get a thought, it's like, like I just have in my, in my head, it's like a thought's not a fact. So the first thought that comes in my head doesn't necessarily mean it's a fact. Mm. And if I actually take, take, take a step back and actually look at it and change my perspective, it then goes away and I get my new perspective, my new like thought, if you like, which is healthier. Mm. That's amazing. Okay. So, so reshifting that mindset is a big one. And I think the 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 because a lot of people listening now might be like yes that's all well and good to say but when you're really in the down and dumps it's almost impossible it's like shifting an iceberg when when those thoughts hit and so 
um, what's been something that you've found to be able to kind of like break you out of that, that cycle, that dark cycle? Um, I think again, like, like I said, is just like telling myself the positive talk every day changes the mindset. So then you're no longer in that kind of unhealthy mindset. So you don't believe things that you would before because it's like you kind of start hearing yourself thinking that's nonsense, you know. And the more you tell yourself that, the less that you start to believe these unhealthy thoughts that are coming in. Yeah, yeah. And, and research would support that. So to kind of put a bit of uh, translate into a bit of a geeky nerd out moment, what that's called yeah. is metacognitive capacity. So basically the ability to see to think about your thoughts and it's one of the three biggest things that we need for good mental health. Number one being connection. Um, Uh but, but that metacognitive capacity enables you to first, we can't change something without first being aware of it. So Uh it is a, Oh, okay. I have awareness of what I've been thinking, what's helpful and not helpful. And I'm not going to judge that. Step one is always, okay, this is, this is seems to be a pattern of thought. Step two is, accepting it or if you can be compassionate towards it but if you can't just accepting it's fine and then Mm -hmm. number three is well is is there a different more helpful more realistic um thought or belief or mindset that i could actually sub in here um and 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 that capacity and i think what, what you're touching on here is it takes patience it takes practice you need to persist and persevere because changing your mindset is just like changing your body that shit takes time and it is hard right but it's worth it yeah Yeah. definitely yeah and and i think what what your what your life coach experience has has shown you outside of the ability to kind of monitor and and um and change your thought patterns is also what it's like to have a stable attachment figure right? Someone yeah. who will yeah. hold you, who will be a, a consistent, um, empathetic yeah. place to, to feel seen. Yeah. And that's the, that's the, like when you just said that empathetic, that's a huge thing as well, because it's not about being sympathetic and all oh, poor you, you know, like when I work, like working with Susan, she never says like, oh, poor you, what a shame. She's empathetic. And I think there's a difference between sympathetic and empathetic, mm-hmm. you know, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that just, yeah, reinforces how important it is to feel like someone gets it, um, can hold that space for you, can, can allow you to feel loved so that you can start loving yourself again. And and I, I think you'll agree that when things start to shift, when that, when that slow momentum starts to come back, um, it starts to snowball. It starts to get a, a momentum of its own, right? And it starts to become, oh, actually, no, I can do this. And, and, and it's like there's wind in your sails again. Yeah, and you start, like like I say, you start getting addicted to it as well because it's like, you know, you, you wake up and you think, oh, what, what's going to happen today? You kind of strive on that challenge. You strive on that addictiveness because it's, it's becoming exciting, you know. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're your protector. And I honestly believe that even in the times of illness, like an eating disorder or otherwise, it is just a gift that's gone too far into a curse. And it sounds like your protector who was, uh, was, was, was just trying to defend and and cope with, you know, belief structures that it, it couldn't accept as real and therefore distorted reality, how it could in order to maintain sanity, um, has now changed its perspective and started, 
working on, on your side for a good thing and that and that tenacity has now got you to here so i would like to officially congratulate that part of you and and thank that part of you who has been to some really really fucking rough spots but is now here to tell your story with me and i i am so inspired you know this this is the the reason why i love my job i wouldn't even call it <laughs> the reason why i love working in this space because it's just real shit like it, this is <laughs> This is the coal face. This is what people do every day. And it's stories like yours, Nicole, where it really gives me belief that, um, that, that things are going to be okay and that we all mm-hmm. can, can draw example and hope from, um, from what you've told us today. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, um, I'll, I'll just offer any last closing remarks or words for anyone listening today. Um, yeah, I think obviously what I was saying before was um, the fact that just remember that thoughts are not facts. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, yes, so much to take out of this and, uh, a, and also uh, an, an unofficial thanks um, <laughs> to Susan, your life coach, for, for all her guidance and mentorship. Um, I think we could all do with a, with a Susan and, and my biggest hope is that we all find someone that that can help us um <clears throat> and be that that guiding light for us and whether it's a psychologist psychiatrist life coach counselor soccer coach mum brother spouse um all we're really looking for is a place to come home and uh yeah. to be able to see ourselves and love ourselves and if we can give that to someone else um and to ourselves then uh then life's kind of worth it yeah yeah all right. Well, um, signing off for now, and I'm sure you'll have uh, a couple of people reaching out to you. Um, but those that do, um, make sure you uh, respect Nicole's uh, boundaries and um, and take it slow. But uh, you have definitely helped a bunch of people today that I am sure of. Um, it was lovely to talk to you, Nicole, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah. Okay. You too. Thank you very much for your time, Mitch. Thanks, Nicole.